Welcome back to the program. Although it doesn't seem like it, in today's world of images and 140 characters, words, stories, and literature once moved people and nations and changed the world. In fact, even in our own nation, the very act of reading, sometimes seen even as subversive, fueled the quest for freedom for all, fired up our democracy, and launched a nation. Today, that nation and its discontent seems to eschew literature as a form of creative engagement, of social discourse, and even an element of citizenship. How did we get here, and what might it mean for the future? This is part of the backdrop of Azar Nafisi's new work, The Republic of Imagination. Azar Nafisi is the critically acclaimed author of Reading Lolita in Tehran. She spent 18 years teaching English and literature in Iran and is now a fellow at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. It is my pleasure to welcome Azar Nafisi back to this program to talk about the Republic of Imagination. Azar, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be on your show. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about what got you thinking about these subjects and the importance of literature, the role that it has played historically, and the degree to which, at least in America, it seems to be somewhat in in its descendancy today, at least in terms of its broader influence. Yeah, it is. Um, in America, I think that um, one of the problems we have uh, is the w- with the elite, <laughs> both our uh, policymakers um, who do not feel that they should support uh, um, great uh, works of imagination. Not only our literature, literature and humanities in general uh, are in danger. You know, our museums, um, the jewel in America's uh, crown, uh, Smithsonian, is in danger because. Uh, they feel that people don't need them as much. It it is a very, you know, it's the other side of America, uh, the side of America that uh, actually um, the great books, uh, American books, uh, constantly were criticizing and reminding us of its danger, which is very utilitarian, very short-sighted in its views. And uh, I think that unconsciously it does see a danger to itself um, uh, through literature and fiction, because literature and fiction question everyone. In some ways, there's been a substitution also in the technology and business and science to some degree, but certainly technology in the lead, has become the center and focus of imagination and change. It has moved away from literature. Well, you are right, and, and to an extent, but you see, the whole point about it is, uh, if you are talking about literature, it goes back to the dawn of man. I mean, it comes out of a very, very basic need that human beings need to um, search for the unknown, not only through science, and that is why literature and science are um, twins. <laughs> They're siblings. They're not what um, uh, we have done to them today, segregating them. And, and, and one aspect of discovering the world, knowing the world in order to control the world um, is through science and through technology. And another aspect of it um, is through humanities, is through literature, through philosophy, through art, through music. And imaginative knowledge uh, is a branch of knowledge. Um, in um, uh, Greek and Roman mythology or Bible or Quran or, you know, since since we remembered that we need to know who we are and what the world is, we have told this story through stories. So it's not something that technology can replace. Technology can complement it, but not replace it. 
And yet, when we look at the way it has played out, when we look at the way the arc of the pendulum here has swung, it does feel like that it's a zero-sum game, that, that as we move towards one, we, we have sacrifice in the other. You know, um, that was one of the reasons I wrote, I wrote this book, because I had this, but I had these contradictory feelings about it. On one hand, the situation is really dire. You know, I was just in D.C. giving a talk um, at Politics and Prose, and, uh, and, and, and this te- frustrated teacher got up, uh, telling me how uh, they were instructed to teach, and, and the rigidity of teaching to children in even elementary schools. Uh, taking out all uh, all elements of questioning and risk and complexity out of it was mind-boggling. Uh, and then our public schools are deprived of um, literature and arts and, uh, uh, and and poetry through common core standards. Now we have fiction reduced to um, 30% uh, for you know until you graduate from high school, as if it was literature's fault that our children are illiterate. I mean, can you imagine that um, reading? Uh, Charles Dickens uh, and being illiterate, you know, so, so what I'm saying that there's that side to it, but then there is another side to it, and that is the, the, the fact that people, especially the young people, are really, really hungry uh, for meaning. And, and, and for passion. And that is why we're creating our parallel universe um, through book groups and book festivals. And uh, uh, bookstores have, again, had a surge uh, in the past two years. Uh, so I think that it is up to us which way it goes. And maybe that's the reality, that the basis of it, that the underpinnings of it somehow have to change, that the broader changes in society and even technology to some extent has to provide the framework by which we do this that we can't count on it being within the context of our educational system anymore. You're right. And, and, and you know, the, um, I, in my book, I mean, take, um, take people like the rest of us, you know, come from such different backgrounds and such different opinions. Um, uh, look at the difference uh, towards humanities and, uh, and um, literature between Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, for example. Uh, Steve Jobs was dedicated to it. He never felt that schools or, um, you know, innovation comes out of, um, uh, you know, going to school to be vocational. Uh, he felt imagination was the heart of his work, and the greatest scientist of all times, Einstein, um, uh, he praised imagination more than knowledge. He said knowledge is limited, but imagination encircles the world. <laughs> you know, if America loses that um, aspect of its um, um, vision, which has been with it since its founding, which is you need to have a dream and you need. To to have a passion and go for it and risk and actualize it, then I, I think that we're in deep trouble, and, and, and we are already in some trouble. We indeed are, but there is also, and, and this is what's so contradictory and confusing about it in so many respects, there is, within certain context, and technology is one, and certainly there are others, a tremendous amount of creativity and yeah. imagination and creative destruction and a lot of things that are going on that, that fulfill that passion and creative imagination, but they don't seem to be driven by literature in the same way. 
Well, you know, they're drawn by imagination. Well, and, 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 and I agree with you, uh, everything you say about, um, uh, about technology. The thing with technology, um, you know, in my chapter on Babbitt, I talk about his love for gadgets. You know, at that time in 1920s, um, it was the, the latest alarm clock, <laughs> you know. And now we have um, moved on through our imagination to Apple and iPod and all of this. But, but we have to remem- remember that technology comes out of the desire for innovation. And that is very important. But it is also a tool in our hands. It is not, uh, you know, something that should be worshipped at, you know, uh, worshipped on its own. Um, for example, when uh, there was Amazon first started, um, we all felt that uh, e-books would be complementing. Um, books and and the fact that it would help millions of people read, um, you know, while before, before you know, uh, less people could could have access to reading. So it is up to us as human beings how we use technology. But if we use technology without imagination, if this utilitarian mindset that everybody needs vocation rather than the ability to connect to their passion, I think that is fatal for a democratic society because democracy needs multivocality of, face, of, of voices. Uh, you cannot replace one with the other. Each has its own place. Indeed it does. And what we're beginning to see, or, or maybe beyond beginning at this point, is a tremendous divide that exists in this country. You were talking about elites before, but a divide between those that participate in that sense of imagination and participate in the arts and those that are so deeply disconnected from it. Right now, you know, I mean, I can understand, and, and it is not, I, I don't want to just blame one group against the other because I always feel that we're all implicated in what happens. But the point about it is, you're right, there is a great division. And part of this division is that we're moving um, uh, from one period to another. This is a period of transition, politically, economically, in terms of the world, in terms of America, and technology. And there's a lot of confusion, and, and, and there's a lot of extreme. That is why I feel works of imagination would be helpful to us, because works of imagination are built not on division, not on ideology, but on understanding. Um, they, they let you go under the skin of others, and they let you re- reveal to you um, things that, that are beyond appearances. And, and that is why today, more than ever, we need to be rooted uh, both in ideas and, and, and imagination in order to make um, this dangerous transition to a new era. But in many ways, exactly the opposite is happening because we are in this period of transition and because there is so much confusion and complexity as a result of that, where once we look to literature as a way to understand that complexity and begin to at least understand or appreciate to some extent people that were not like us, out of mm-hmm. fear of change and fear of transition today, plus the, what technology allows us to do, we tend to move more and more towards only people and ideas that are exactly in sync with us. Well, well you know, that is why, uh, you know, 
I, I tell you, uh, people think that writers know from the very beginning what they want to write. You know that that is not the truth. Nor do the readers from the very beginning when they open a book know what they, you know, what, what they want to read. It, it is that joy of discovery. I was amazed, and I tell you that I spent, after reading Lolita in Tehran, um, the, the, the last chapter of that, I begin this discussion that I have in this new book. And, and, and I have been thinking and reading these books. You know, it amazes me when I read Huckleberry Finn or when I read Babbitt or when I read James Baldwin, how much of what they address about the nature of American society, the nature of humanity, the nature of relationships, the nature of our morality is what exists today. Because if we want to remain human, then there are certain traits that are universal to all humanity at all times. And, and Babbitt um, reveals to us the stand, what is dangerous is not gadgets or is not um, technology. It is standardization of thought. And standardization of thought comes with taking away everything that is various, that is colorful, that is multifaceted, which is stories, poetry, art, philosophy, imagination, out of our schools. And everything that a democracy was based on, which was telling children, you need to go to school because you have a passion and we help you actualize your dream. That is why technology was flourishing. And telling them instead, you need to go to school to pass the standard tests and to be good worker bees and, and find the vocations that are going to give you millions of dollars. Um, it is that attitude which is wrong. Uh, it is not a fight between technology and literature. I think that the utilitarian attitude is trying to tell us that that is the fight. I reject it. I, I, I definitely reject it. How much of that, though, comes out of fear, fear of economic dislocation, fear of economic change, and concerns that really go to economic issues? And, and the other part of it is, and you write about this, the, the impact of consumer culture on the broader society. Yeah, you know, no poet or writer or bookstore owner or teacher or librarian caused the current crisis. You know, I mean, it is, uh, the whole point is that it is very interesting to me that the people who caused the crisis uh, through monopolizing uh, the economy, through in fact bringing in this culture um, of American individualism, which is not the true individualism that Huck Finn talks about, but a doggy dog world kind of Donald Trumpian uh, form of individualism, each for his own, make as much money, create this illusion uh, through a Kim Kardashian, have the people take the happy pill and, 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 and just be in, interested in uh, non-entity celebrity culture. All of these things, none of them are the fault of literature and arts. These are all the fault of a culture that wants to um, entrap us more and more in the illusion that we need to buy, we need to buy, we need to buy. Everybody today is marketing themselves. Our, our politicians shamelessly rebrand themselves. How can the American people believe in people who market themselves in order to win the elections? How can they not remember George Washington who said that we are public officials so as president 
president and Benjamin Franklin, we should not get money. We should not be paid because money corrupts. How could we forget that? that? Um, you know, I'm sorry that I get sometimes <laughs> emotional about this, but I read on about the great men and women who created this country, um, from the founders to Abraham Lincoln to Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King, and I see that uh, from that dream, we have the monuments now to these people, but we have forgotten the dream. And yet that Western culture, that broader cultural framework that you're talking about, is the culture that a great deal of the world wants to seemingly wants to adopt. That is the whole point. You know, I keep telling people, what is it that um, uh, Mr. Khamenei in Iran or, uh, or um, the dictators um, in, in China or, uh, or all over the world are afraid of? They're not afraid of America's military might and the disastrous war in Iraq and all the others that we have been involved in showed us that people are not afraid of us even when they will come and throw bombs, um, uh, you know, uh, over both the innocents and the non-innocents. So that is not the point about America. What these tyrants are afraid of is a democratic culture. And what people like Malala, in fact, I'm naming her, she's just one person among millions because people know her now. Like Malala, they are ready to give up their lives, but to be able not to just read and write, but as she said, to, to listen to the music they want, read the book they want, you know, talk the way they want. It is that freedom of expression, freedom of choice uh, that 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 makes people so fascinated with our country and the last thing i want to say it is very ironic to me that china because we keep talking about china winning you know uh, being ahead of us in math and others chinese now have discovered that without liberal arts they can't move ahead and they have been investigating american liberal colleges but they cannot have liberal colleges without liberty now isn't it very ironic that China finds its solution in this system, which it cannot as yet emulate, and we in America are becoming more and more like Chinese in becoming rigid uh, and, and um, you know, shunning uh, ideas and openness and, 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 and imagination from our colleges. Isn't there a certain element of human nature in that, though, this idea that it always looks better from afar, the old cliche about the grass looking green around the other <laughs> yes. side? There does seem to be an element of that at play here. Yeah, yeah it does look so, but but I tell you, I'm sitting here in the United States, and China doesn't seem better to me <laughs> than the United States does, definitely. But what I'm worried about is that uh, freedom, like happiness, um, is very evasive. Um, you know, people have fought for it, died for it, and, and, and people need to fight for it to preserve it. Uh, if American people do not develop that critical mindset, that uh, fiction and philosophy and thought bring to it, uh, to make choices. Uh, nowadays, from choosing your toothpaste to choosing your representative or your president um, is mired in this age of advertisement. 
an, a knowledgeable person, uh, a responsible citizen uh, would make, uh, would try to make the right decision. But if we are just mired in this culture, we would never know how to make the right choices. We already have proved that we cannot make the right choices. Look at the kind of um, mess our Congress um, is right now uh, steeped in. You know, we are, uh, we as voters are as responsible as those people in Congress. And I, I wanted to remind the American people as a new citizen that responsibility does not go just to the elite. We are responsible. And we as readers are responsible. We are responsible for what we want to read. And if we don't show it, if we don't support our bookstores, our libraries, if we don't support our schools, if we do not let people know what we want, then someone else is going to define us. The other part of that equation, and I know you write about this, and some of your colleagues at SAIS have also written about this, the idea that freedom has gotten so mired and so caught up in the idea of ideology that everything from the toothpaste we buy to the choices that we make in the grocery store are somehow caught up in an ideological divide. And, and that's part of the problem as well. You are exactly right. I'm so glad you brought this up because I think utilitarianism and ideology, they seem as if they don't go together, they go together because both of them try to make us feel comfortable. You talked about fear. Both of them make us feel, give us this um, uh, false security blanket because what are they, what does ideology tell us? That whether right or left, um, it tells us that we're the good guys, we're the white hats. Those are the bad guys. Um, if you, can, you, you shouldn't eliminate them necessarily physically, but you can eliminate them through words. Whatever they say is wrong. Uh, you know, Obama is a socialist. So and so, I mean, you know, the whole atmosphere then becomes comfortable for us because we don't need to think. Because the group think has already decided for me what channel I turn to if I want to, le uh, to, to read the news. In our academy, we interrogate the great books, not based on whether they are great books or not, whether they make us think or not, but whether they agree with the kind of ideology or political correctness um, that is our political correctness, you know. Uh, and that is the challenge of, I think, uh, uh, every single person, actually, in this country. Uh, and, you know? and the, the interesting question that goes with that is how we got this way. Is it the change that's taking place, the transition, the fear, the complexity that drives us to want to just sign up for one particular ideology and just buy into all aspects of it. Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, uh, you bring up the word fear, and I think that that is a really very important fear, because, uh, <laughs> important, not important fear, but important word, mm -hmm. uh, what you say. Uh, people, are, especially at time of crisis, are, are very scared of... Um, uh, of, of the uncertainty. Now, what actually works of fiction do? They show us that this reality that we hold on to, and I have experienced it myself in my life, um, is so fragile that a war or a revolution or simply an earthquake um, can tomorrow take away everything that you had, you know, and, and make you a wanderer, uh, uh, you know, in, in the whole, and alone in the whole wide world. Because of that fear, in time of crisis, 
we turn to ideology. And if you look at history, if you look at the history of, like, for example, J Germany just before the Reich, if you look at the history of the uh, Soviet Union, I mean, Russia just before uh, the 1917 revolution, and, and if you look at the history of a place like Iran uh, before our revolution, uh, people were afraid and, 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 and people rushed towards finding a security blanket um, in a person, in an ideology, in a dogma, or in simply just watching TV and uh, wanting to forget about it all. And, and this is why the period is dangerous, and, and, and we need to be very alert about what we do. Azar Nafisi. Her book is The Republic of Imagination, America in Three Books. Azar, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. I so much appreciate talking to you. Thank you for your wonderful, wonderful challenge. Thank you. We'll take Thank a break. You. I'll be right back. Okay.